So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes and figs from thorn bushes? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears the words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain came and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Our subject over the next four weeks is one which we rarely hear spoken of. I asked a fairly experienced follower of Jesus who had trusted Jesus all their lives, a number of decades. They'd never heard a talk on this matter. It's not an easy topic for us to discuss. When Jesus spoke of it, he did so with tears in his eyes. But it is a subject that Jesus spoke of pretty much more than any other. It lies behind God's purpose in sending Jesus and Jesus' willingness to come to earth in the form of a baby. It's what Christmas is about. Our method is going to be go to go to the teaching of Jesus in one gospel, Matthew's gospel. And here we will find at least 30 direct references to the topic, all of them from the lips of Jesus, and multiple, multiple indirect references in addition. So our subject is the rarely mentioned one of hell. I've called the series Hell from the Lips of Jesus. And as I say, the vast majority of our time will be in Matthew's gospel. And each week we shall focus on one particular section of the gospel. We haven't got time to do all five sections. But this week, the most famous of all of Jesus' teaching were in the Sermon on the Mount. It's become something of a cliche to note that the Sermon on the Mount lies behind much of the value system of the 21st century secularist culture. Humanism arose in large part from Jesus' teaching. 
But where do we find Jesus' teaching on hell in its most concentrated form in the Gospels? In the Sermon on the Mount. In the same place that we hear Jesus expound the golden rule and tell us we should love our enemies and pray for those against us, and to hear Jesus declare, blessed are those who mourn, in precisely that place, we hear Jesus warning us of hell. One other preliminary as we begin. It won't be an easy few weeks. It's not easy for the preacher, and it's not easy for the listener. It is with no sense of delight or secret rubbing together of the hands in glee that we tackle such a subject. For all of us, it will impact ourselves personally, our understanding of the Lord Jesus and our faith in him. It will impact us as we consider our friends, our loved ones, family, colleagues, acquaintances. But Jesus spoke of hell. Jesus believed in hell. Hell is why Jesus came. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so it is with tears in the eyes and with love in the heart that we speak of hell. Now, this week, we're going to tackle the issue of Jesus and his belief in hell and teaching. Next week, we will look at the fact that people go to hell, real people go to hell. In the third week, hell is forever. And finally, Jesus died to save us from hell. My first point this week is the subject of the whole series really, and of this talk, Jesus believes in hell. Now, the Sermon on the Mount closes with Jesus outlining what is effectively two ways to live. We find that at the end of chapter 7. We've just read the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll note, if you turn back the page to page 979, that there are two paths, one leading to destruction, the other to life. Enter by the narrow gate, verse 13, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it by it are many. The gate is narrow, the way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. There are two paths. One leads to destruction. There are two kinds of teacher. Beware false prophets, verse 15, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And there are these teachers who are ravenous wolves whose end is the fire. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then there are two kinds of listener, two kinds of disciple. One who is told, depart from me on the final day of judgment. So verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Those who do not do the will of the Father, verse 23, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
And then there are two kinds of building. There's the building of the fool, who ignores the teaching of Jesus, the building built on a foundation of sand that is washed away on the judgment day, and the building of the wise person who pays close attention to the teaching of Jesus, whose house and life stands on that final day. So Jesus believes in hell. The gate is wide, the way is easy, that leads to destruction. Every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cast into the fire. I never knew you, depart from you, workers of lawlessness. Great was the fall of it. As if the close of the Sermon on the Mount is not clear enough, just turn back to chapter 5, verse 22. Whoever says, you fool, chapter 5, verse 22, it's just page 977. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. From the Sermon on the Mount, this most famous of Jesus' teaching, we can also add, The salt that has lost its taste is thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Those whose righteousness does not exceed the Pharisees will never enter God's kingdom. The murderer will be liable to judgment, and on and on and on. Jesus believes in hell. Remember one big civic livery service we used to hold here at St. Helens? kind of civic affair back in the late 1990s, I spoke on the man or the woman who builds their house on solid foundation and the idiot who won't pay attention to Jesus' teaching who is washed away on the day of judgment because their house is built on sand. And over lunch, afterwards, one of the ladies of the livery turned to me and said, I'm so glad you're not one of those preachers who speaks about judgment. I was so dumbfounded I couldn't think of a sensible reply. What I should have said is, if I were one of those preachers who does not believe Jesus preaches judgment, you could never call me a Christian preacher. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. There will be people visiting us for the first time this evening. If you're here As a first time investigating the Christian faith, you come to just the right place. It's absolutely wonderful you are here. Jesus has this to say to us. We are not atomized individuals without beginning and without end, unaccountable beings. The world is not just going meaninglessly round in circles. There is a point to it all. There is accountability There's a final whistle. The curtain will fall. The play will end. The day of judgment will come. And there is heaven. And there is hell. Secondly, hell is real. That is, Jesus believes in a real place called hell. Hell is not simply an idea or a concept. 
Hell isn't simply the dark side of life or the sadness and suffering that people experience in life today. I've been through hell. Jordan Peterson was interviewed by Piers Morgan just before Christmas. His daughter, Michaela, was there. He was questioned on his faith. Do you believe in God? She said, come on, Dad, you know you do. He replied, I certainly believe in hell. Now, I don't know what Peterson meant by that. I suspect, given the grim last few years he had, that at least part of what he was saying is, I feel I've been through the most terrible time. But the hell Jesus speaks of is a real place. He uses the word Gehenna. That's what's translated as hell in Matthew's gospel in the translation you have in front of you. The word at Gehenna comes from the Hebrew word meaning the valley of Hinnom, Gehinnom. This valley was a ravine to the south of Jerusalem, the city. And in the Old Testament, it was the place where sacrifices were made and worship conducted to that gross and ghastly pagan idol of Moloch. Chant sacrifices were among such sacrifices. Ours is not the only culture that disposes of unwanted babies. King Josiah made the Valley of Hinnom a dumping ground for the filth and the corpses of criminals. In Jesus' day, it had become a vast garbage pit in which all the offal and waste and rubbish of Jerusalem was tipped. And this detritus of human waste was set alight and burned in perpetual smoldering pits. We might think of the rubbish pits outside the city of Dhaka or Calcutta. And Gehenna came to symbolize the place of final judgment and of eternal punishment. So says Jesus, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Fear him, rather, who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna, in hell. It's better to enter life with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into Gehenna, the hell of fire. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Hades is also mentioned, and Hades is the place where the souls of those who have lived in rebellion against God are sent, who have already died, and await the final judgment of the last day. So Lazarus is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and in the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, The rich man is described as being in torment in Hades. His five brothers are still alive on earth today, still alive on earth at the time of the parable. And he's awaiting the judgment of the final day. He is hell bound. He is in torment as he waits. So there is no no man's land in the universe. No waiting room between heaven and hell. No soul sleep after death or period of unconsciousness where those who are hell bound wait in oblivion. Just as the thief on the cross who turns back to God and turns to Jesus is told, today you will be with me in paradise. So those who reject the rule of God and who hold out in rejection through their life 
when they die, before the final judgment day, their soul goes to Hades, awaiting the final destiny. But hell is a real place. You hear some people suggest that Jesus is speaking simply in picture language. Clearly, he's using exaggerated language when he talks about it being better to cut off the hand than to enter into hell. And and we don't find the early disciples mutilating themselves. It's well understood to be metaphorical picture language, seeking to exaggerate the seriousness of the matter. So then surely the hell of fire is also exaggerated picture language, metaphorical. No, hell is referred to as the place of torment. The word is for a physical place. It's repeatedly held out as a specific destination beyond the grave. It is a real place created by God for the punishment of sin. So Jesus, in one of the incidents he speaks, says this, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his messengers. Hell is real. It has spatial dimensions. It is a place of torment. It has a precise location. There is such a place as hell. Why hold a series of four weeks at the start of a new year, after all the joy and celebration of Christmas, on this subject? Well, because hell is real. Because Jesus warns of it. Because Jesus is described as saviour, And he came into the world to save us from hell. And because the salvation Jesus came to bring was from judgment. Someone else might say, well, all this talk of hell, it's frightening. It's kind of nearly hate speech. I I mean, I feel triggered. You should be cancelled. Can you imagine that Japanese aircraft? Crew members, do you see it? with the fire's flames licking around the outside. Can you imagine being a passenger? They managed to evacuate them in 90 seconds. Could you ever imagine saying, oh, to stop warning us about the fire outside? I feel triggered. That's hate speech. There was a real threat, a real danger, a real warning, a real urgency. What then is hell like? Well, I haven't really been able to answer that question on your handout with a specific uh, adjective. I I, I just couldn't find one that is suitable. I've just put hell is dot, dot, dot. Jesus believes in hell. Hell is real. Hell is. The teaching of Jesus and the rest of the New Testament is deliberately non, might might I say, non-comprehensive. That is, we're not given detailed moment-by-moment descriptions of hell. Therefore, we should be cautious in being overly detailed ourselves and not just speculating. We're warned of hell, but we're not given particular details. Various aspects are made clear. The images we find on the lips of Jesus are fire, the hell of fire, eternal fire. Destruction, separation, outer darkness, the outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth repeatedly six times, eternal punishment. 
We may be familiar with some of the artwork of the medieval and slightly later times, Peter Bruegel, the Younger, Hieronymus Bosch, the Garden of Earthly Delights, William Blake, Jan van Eyck. They depict pitchforks and fire pits and distortions of human form and scenes of utmost depravity. I don't think that's helpful. One great writer, systematician, theologian, Louis Burkhoff, suggests hell is the total absence of the favor of God, endless disturbance of life because of the complete dominion of sin, positive pain and suffering, subjective punishment, pangs of conscience, anguish. As I've thought about the different images Jesus uses in Matthew's gospel, I've given you three subheadings, A, B, and C. Hell is. It's a place of separation from the goodness of God, but not from God himself. You notice in our passage, Jesus will say, depart from me. In chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus refers to the outer darkness. We find that also in chapter 22 and 25. This is a place of the absence of God's cheering light, God's favor. In this creation, all of us, we're beneficiaries of God's common grace. We experience his favor. Whether we recognize his rule or not, we all experience his favor. Friendship, rain in due season, health, the pleasures of this world. There will be none of these in hell. When God withdraws his blessing, only darkness is left. Light symbolizes purity, holiness, glory, hope. Darkness speaks of terrible trouble, affliction, fear, moral depravity. One person once said to me when I was warning them of hell, oh, but it'd be all right, my friends will be there. No, there will be no friendship in hell. The author C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a short book called The Great Divorce, which is deliberately set up as, in his words, a fantasy and a speculative, imaginative account of what it could possibly be like. He's very cautious to say that in his introduction. He also says in his introduction that earth, he thinks, if chosen instead of heaven, will turn out to have been all along only a region in hell. That is all the miserable things we experience as a result of rebelling against God in terms of isolation from him and other people are just a subset of an exponential increase in such miseries. What will hell be like? Isolation cut off from the goodness of God, but not from God himself. It will be a place of punishment by God. Secondly, the hell of fire, the fiery furnace, the eternal fire, the eternal punishment. They're all phrases used by Jesus in Matthew's gospel. 
He speaks of weeping and of gnashing of teeth on six occasions. Does weeping suggest an inner pain of heart, mind, and soul? An inner sorrow, gnashing of teeth, an outward pain of body? Together, they speak of anguish, grief, heartache, suffering. Hell is a place of punishment. Some people have suggested that weeping implies regret or remorse over a failure to have made the right decision in this life. I'm not at all persuaded by that. There is no repentance in hell. There's no way back. There's no second chance. There's no hope. There's no point in praying for the dead. In the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man shows no remorse, no regret, no repentance. And so the experience is one of an eternal existence cut off from God's goodness, but with God present in judgment under his condemnation for eternity. And those in hell refuse to repent or bend or turn or change. They are set in everlasting rejection of God. One author is particularly helpful, I think, as a popular book. His name is Edward Donnelly, Biblical Teaching on the Doctrines of Heaven and Hell. Those who are in hell continue to sin, incurring more guilt to all eternity. Revelation chapter 22, verse 11, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. There is a consequent accumulation of guilt forever and ever. This is what makes hell so wretched, so awful, so desperate. Somebody might say, well, how can we know these things? And the answer is on the same basis that we know everything else about God. Jesus tells us, these unseen, hidden realities of eternity. How do we know that God loves us? Only because Jesus tells us so. How do we know that God is good and just? Only because Jesus has shown us so. How do we know that God created the universe in the first place? Only because God told us so. How do we know that there's a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth? Only because God has revealed it. And that's why no sooner has someone rejected Jesus' teaching on hell and the reality of the devil than everything else begins to head south. You reject Jesus' teaching on hell. Very rapidly, you will reject Jesus' teaching on heaven, on the resurrection, on sin, on his death. Another outstanding article by Leon Morris called The Dreadful Harvest. You can Google it. Those who in modern times reject the whole idea of hell seem not to have realized the difficulties in dispensing with the concept. The kind-hearted humanitarian decides to improve upon Christianity. The thought of hell offends their susceptibilities. So they close the idea of hell and to, to their surprise... The gates of heaven close also with a melancholy ring.
Well, as we close, back to where we began. There are two ways to live, says Jesus. There are two paths. One is narrow, the other is broad. One has a wide gate, the other has a small gate. One has many on the path, one has just a few. We should not be at all surprised to find ourselves running against the tide. It need not unnerve us if we find the Christian life is hard. If we are the only one on the path, this should not surprise us. There are two paths. One is broad. It leads to destruction. One is narrow. There are two kinds of teacher. One tells us that all is fine, that there really is nothing to worry about. All those people about talk about heaven and hell, they're really just extremists. Ignore them. Everything will be okay in the end. There is no heaven above us and no hell below, as John Lennon put it. Oh, stay on the plane. There's really nothing to be concerned with. It's minor turbulence. Drinks anyone? Duty free? Don't worry about those strange preachers who teach what Jesus so plainly taught. Things have changed. There are two kinds of follower. One takes the teaching with utmost seriousness and has a sense of urgency and passion, seriousness and intensity. The other is casual, relaxed. There are two foundations. One is a house built on sand. The other is on rock. I was on a conference of preachers this week. You can imagine what happens at conferences with preachers. People ask you, what are you preaching on at the moment? And a number of people asked me, and I said, I'm starting a series on hell. One individual said, will there be anybody left in St. Helens when you finish? (laughs) To which I replied, I certainly hope so, but that's not really the point. The point is, Do we believe in the Jesus of the Bible or have we created our own fictional, imaginary Jesus? What am I hoping and praying for? That we will have a heightened sense of the majesty and sovereignty of God who decides the destiny of every individual we will ever meet. That we will have a heightened understanding of the dreadful seriousness of sin, the need for holiness and purity of life. That we will grasp more deeply the extraordinary love of the Lord Jesus. that we will see the plight of our friends and family and loved ones and that we will have an intense urgency to go and make disciples of all nations in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We do praise you, our Father, for your kindness in warning us. We do praise you for your extraordinary love, that you should send your only son, that he should come willingly to carry the judgment we deserve and save us from hell. 
We pray that you would write over these weeks, write these truths indelibly and that nothing and nobody will snatch these words from our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen.